0: Hey there, whatcha doing, America? Should we listen to some mind control stuff? Or... type on braces to lose it all this week. That sounds fun. Streamed six hours ago. Six hours ago! Thanks of 320k, even though it's all law enforcement.
1: 83.3 million dollar jury verdict ended down against him in the E. Gene Carroll defamation trial yeah. on Friday,
0: uh-huh. and we Swamp. are
1: days or potentially hours away from a verdict in the New York Attorney yeah. General civil fraud case. For Donald Trump, may be hit with a verdict as high as 500. Mm -hmm. million dollars. Now, for Trump to appeal these cases, he will have to post a bond equal to these verdict amounts. And these verdicts could be higher than all of the cash he has on hand combined. Mm -hmm. He'll break it down. And on the eve of the New York judge reaching his final decision in the civil fraud case, what is Donald Trump doing Donald Trump is now attacking retired federal judge Barbara Jones, who's been serving as the independent financial monitor in the fraud case. This, after her latest report on Friday, indicated that the Trump organization has had, during the pendency of the lawsuit, during the pendency of the New York Attorney General case, incomplete disclosures, inconsistent disclosures, and... Just over the past 14 months, Donald Trump is now claiming that this distinguished retired federal judge, Barbara Jones, lacked the competency to be the financial monitor, and she's being greedy and wants to remain the financial monitor. That's why Trump's claiming she prepared that report, and Trump's saying to Justice Ingoron, who he's been attacking relentlessly that N'Goron should now fire retired federal judge Barbara Jones. That's where we are with the Trump Organization cases. Donald Trump was out this weekend in Vegas giving a speech where he has made the centerpiece of his 2024 campaign the following. He purportedly passed a cognitive test given to patients with serious brain damage. That's Donald Trump's 2024 campaign. (laughs) Trump also continued to attack the bipartisan. Let me repeat that again. Bipartisan border deal. Since Donald Trump wants to continue to whine about the border during the election and do nothing about it. He's been posting about it today as well, saying we don't need a deal. We need nothing at all. Totally, totally pathetic. Now. Compare that to President Biden over the weekend and even Nikki Haley, both who were hitting Donald Trump hard in South Carolina for Trump being a weak, pathetic, grifter, loser. I guess there is something that Democrats and actual Republicans can agree on. Also, Donald Trump's been making unhinged posts today trying to take credit for the booming economy and record-breaking stock market. Trump is claiming apparently that uh, because he keeps taking cognitive exams that that's one of the reasons the stock market is doing well right now. Also, Republican leaders and influencers spent the entire day attacking Taylor Swift and her boyfriend, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, and the NFL claiming, if you guessed a conspiracy, you're right, but get this one, that Swift and Kelsey are in a relationship as part of a Democratic sigh up to attack Donald Trump, and they are being propped up by a rigged and woke NFL. Donald Trump's lawyer, Alina Hobb is getting in on the action. She posted a meme saying that she is a better role model for women than Taylor Swift. Wow, delusional. Also, Midas Touch hit a new record high. 2.5 billion with the B views. 2.5 billion views. But more important than that, more important, frankly, than all of that other news I mentioned, Jordy, who's not with us today, had a beautiful baby boy. Congratulations, Jordy dad jordy is a dad a beautiful beautiful baby so Jordy's spending time with his newborn wow wow i, I, uncles. I, I really I, I still can't believe it when i got the call this weekend i'm not even gonna lie uh, to the minus mighty right now i broke down in tears of happiness when i found out uh that jordy had the baby um sending our love and congratulations to jordy and his wife um it's been an incredible weekend uh for us you know it's it's been really really exciting and uh jordy does not i see a lot of people saying we need a name we need a name jordy wants to do the official name announcement himself so we are going to let him have those honors when he decides that he wants to break that news to you uh but we can report that the baby is here and we could not be happier ...for our younger brother. Younger brother, the first one to have the baby? How
0: how does that work out? youngest.
1: Youngest. How does that work out? Anyways, uh, let's get it. We've talked more about that on Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash touch. You can check out the after show there. Man, do you feel like these people are losing it even more, like, by the day? It's an exponential losing of their minds. This Taylor Swift thing, in particular, which we'll get into in a little bit, I really like these moments that they have because it really exposes the brain worms that they have (laughs) and it exposes it to people who may not understand or know who these people even are. And then they're confronted for the first time with a Charlie Kirk tweet or a end wokeness tweet or whatever these accounts are. And they get to see, okay, yeah, these people are clinically insane. These people are off the deep end. And I think that's important because they look at every single thing through the same lens that they look through this Taylor Swift situation is. It's very reflective of their entire thinking. I think it's informative. I think it informs the audience of how they operate. That's why I think it's actually an important topic to cover today. Because MAGA exists in a world devoid of facts. But when we talk about all of these Trump cases, we should not forget that ultimately it's not Jack Smith who's indicting someone, right? It's not Fulton County District Attorney, Fawnnie Willis who's indicting someone. It's not Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg who's indicting someone. right it's It's a grand jury. So there have been four separate grand juries. These are Donald Trump's peers who have heard the evidence and found probable cause. For crimes. Then you go into the civil cases where Donald Trump was adjudicated to be a rapist by a civil jury last May, and they also found him liable for defamation last May. So there was a whole nother federal jury in New York who heard the facts. They were aware that Donald Trump had the opportunity to tell his side of the story, and he ran away and would not testify. They ruled in May. Another jury ruled on Friday. Brett, it seems like a very long time ago, but that E. Jean Carroll verdict was handed down on Friday. We're recording this live on Monday. When I was putting together the outline today, I was like, we've talked about that already right? On the, on the show. We've talked about it in a few hot takes, but it's actually our first show since the verdict. But it does feel like it was weeks and weeks and weeks ago. But these are people who are selected through what's called a voir dire process, selected by plaintiff's lawyers and selected by uh, the defendants' lawyers, Trump's lawyers, who will be impartial, and they hear the facts, they observe Donald Trump's behavior, and they've consistently come out with these outcomes. So for all of Donald Trump's whining about the New York Attorney General civil fraud case. I wish I would have been in front of a jury. I want jury. Jury, jury, jury. It wasn't a check-the-box thing. I want a jury. Really? Because every jury you've been in front of, you've also lost, by the way, including the criminal jury in the other Manhattan District Attorney criminal case that people seem to have forgotten, where the Trump Organization was found criminally liable for over a dozen felonies And the Trump CFO Alan Weisselberg served hard time at Rikers Island after pleading guilty to tax fraud. Well, that happened in front of a jury. And so once again, on Friday, a jury of Donald Trump's peers ordered him to pay $83.3 million to E. Gene Carroll for his defamation. Now, I've done a lot of trials. I've been to a lot of trials. I've never seen a trial where the defendant was generating the evidence against him in real time at the trial, where Trump was posting more defamatory statements. And then in real time, Eugene Kaplan's lawyers, e. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, would then take the documents and then show The jury, hey, look what he just posted. Hey, he just posted this. Hey, we got another one right now during the opening, during the closing, throughout the proceeding, generating evidence in the case against him. I just hadn't seen that before. And Alina Habba on behalf of Donald Trump, their defense was that E. Jean Carroll got what she wanted. She should be happy. Why is she upset? Donald Trump made her famous, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. That's actually what Alina Habba's main argument to the jury was, that throughout her whole life, E. Jean Carroll wanted fame, and she got it. Trump made her famous. Her rapist made her famous, and then he keeps defaming her. Why isn't she thanking this man? That's actually the argument that Alina Habba made. So we can talk about, of course, how incompetent Alina Abe is, how she didn't know how to introduce evidence, establish a foundation. She didn't know that you have to, like, pre-mark exhibits. She couldn't know her way around or didn't know her way around the courtroom at all. But when you remove all of that, if you remove all of the incompetence, the fact that she's never done a federal trial before, that she had no clue what she was doing. How disgusting of a defense was that? And then you would have Donald Trump in the courtroom, like, saying things under his breath. She's a liar. She's a liar. She's a liar. And he would storm out of the courtroom when he didn't like what was being said by E. Jean Carroll's lawyer. So a jury saw this behavior. And in the closing argument, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer looked at the jury and said, you saw how this man behaved. You saw how he treated you during this process. Think about that. And you saw that even during this case, he kept on defaming her. So what is it going to take to get him to stop? And this $83.3 million verdict, which included $65 million in punitive damages, $18.3 million in compensatory damages, it's like the perfect verdict because it's going to be so hard to overturn those numbers on appeal. The Supreme Court has held that if punitive damages are like 10 times your compensatory damages, they could potentially be reduced as being too high. And there are some New York cases that say after five times compensatory damages, courts will scrutinize it. But this is like the perfect number, 18.3 million compensatory right around what the expert said for reputational repair damages. So right on the money there, then the 65 million in punitive damages. And here's the thing for Trump to appeal this, he's going to now have to post a bond equal to $83.3 million. Otherwise E. Gene Carroll can start collection activity. It won't stay the collection activity unless he posts this bond. So What did Alina Habba do right before we went live? She sent a letter. There she is right there. She sent a letter attacking federal judge Lewis Kaplan Ah. based on some New York Post story, which she called an investigative piece. But in fact, it was just a piece quoting her. Like the New York Post story that she claims has this evidence which shows that Judge Lewis Kaplan— was a mentor to E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, is a New York Post article where they just got a quote from Alina Haba. And so it's not an investigative piece at all. And she's basically saying that federal judge Lewis Kaplan engaged in impropriety, and she's attacking him in a letter. He almost locked her up before closing arguments because of her behavior. And I'm just waiting for that response by Judge Kaplan to drop any moment now. And now that the jury verdict is done, I think you could even see Judge Kaplan have far more serious penalties. This was the title of the investigative piece that Alina Hoppe was citing. Trump lawyers will use conflict of interest between Judge Carroll's attorney in appeal of $83.3 million jury verdict. And it quotes Alina Haba as saying, this is insane. So she's quoting that as an investigative piece, which is just her quote to a Murdoch property as evidence to attack the judge and saying the judge had an unlawful conflict of interest. Think about that. She's the worst. She is the absolute worst attorney on the planet. Uh, For all of her mocking of Taylor Swift, which we'll get to in a little bit, I think if you threw Taylor Swift in the courtroom, Taylor Swift, with not a single law class, would do a significantly better job than Alina Haba. And the wild thing about Haba is you could tell she thinks she's crushing it, right? Like she walks around with this false sense of bravado and she acts like she is like the greatest lawyer on the planet. She thinks she has these Perry Mason moments in the courtroom when she's not proving anything. She's just irritating everybody in that courtroom. I wish it were quantifiable and maybe you could speak to this, but how much did it add to that jury verdict every time Donald Trump made a post on Truth Social. How much did it add to that jury verdict every time Donald Trump stood at the defense table and started bounding on the table and yelling at the attorneys? How much did it take every time Alina Haba scolded the jury and started yelling at them saying, She loved this, Eugene Carroll. She loves this right here. It's like every kind of false move that you could possibly imagine. Alina Haba took it to the next. Level and it's no wonder that Joe Takapina. I know this wasn't Takapina's case, it's no wonder though Takapina left the legal team before all of this. He's like, I don't even want to be a part of these amateur attorneys. My joke was that Alina Haba, it's pretty impressive though. She was able to turn a five million dollar judgment in the first case into an 83.3 million (laughs) dollar judgment in the second. Eugene Carroll Carroll trial. You look back at that first E. Jean Carroll trial, you go, oh, Takapina only got away, got out with $5 million. That's not so bad. $83.3 million. That is a whole lot of money, and it's a lot of money, yes, for Donald Trump. Donald Trump claimed in one of these depositions, it was the New York civil fraud case, right, Ben, that he has around $400 million in cash. 400 million liquid. So if that is to be believed, you have 83.3 million here. If he wants to appeal this case, he has to put that up and more for bond. Then if we get this judgment this week, which could be in the hundreds of millions, likely to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars against Donald Trump, if he wants to appeal that case, that's basically all of his cash, potentially more money than he even has. Brett, Alina Hoppe is such a bad lawyer that in the cases that she files, where Trump is the plaintiff, she gets judgments against <laughs> Donald Trump. Right? In the case where she sued Hillary Clinton and, and she dozens of other individuals in a sub- and she brags about it in the Southern District of Florida, she was sanctioned and Donald Trump was sanctioned nearly one million dollars. They were the plaintiffs. They were the ones asking for the money, and they had to pay the defendant's damages of about a million dollars. And she wasn't done there. (laughs) She wasn't done there. Then they sued the New York Times in that Mary Trump case, right? He was the plaintiff. She was his lawyer. They sued the New York Times. They ended up owing the New York Times about $400,000 in that case. They were the plaintiffs. The New York Times were the defendant. The New York Times were awarded damages against Donald Trump, where they were the ones getting sued. And she's been paid about $3 million from the PAC in her legal fees. So if you add all of this up, she's like, cost Donald Trump close to $100 million. These sanctions and these verdicts. And it's going to be close to a billion by the time, it's going to be close to like Half a billion to a billion dollars by the time we get the verdict in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case. And then you got this MAGA fan fiction, right? They had, where everything is the opposite of reality. So, of course, Alina Habba loses the case. $83.3 million judgment. And what do these MAGA influencers go? I, unironically, I wish I had Alina Habba as my uh-huh. attorney. Thank God! Donald Trump is represented by somebody like Alina Hava. When I saw that, I said, yeah, I, I I agree, actually. Thank God Donald Trump is being represented by Alina Hava. She is the absolute worst attorney on the planet. The worst. Her post
2: was, this
1: is far from over, after she got hit with that verdict. This is far from over. We are just getting started. Hashtag MAGA. Hashtag Trump derangement syndrome Ah, self-diagnosis it's borderline just (laughs) like like you couldn't write this in a script how corny it is right like after the bad guy gets defeated or the bad person gets defeated it's like this is far from over we are just getting started. We're just getting started with what? Losing? You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just getting started because next week, this switch. Okay, so I think she was telling Got the truth. Started with we're, what? We're <laughs> just getting started losing money because this week we lost $83 million. Next week it might be 350000000 million, 500 million. We'll see. And so she was just saying we're just getting started at losing hundreds of millions of dollars. I think that's what she was trying to say. Because I always say MAGA <laughs> equals fascism, but plus. Idiocracy, and thankfully, the idiocracy for now has far exceeded their ability to implement their fascist designs. Because they've got people like Alina Habba, Giuliani, and Trump, and Boris Epstein, and this whole other MAGA crew. But any moment now, Brett, we could, while we're live, for all we know, it could hit. But I think it'll happen probably tomorrow so tuesday or maybe right before or or february but it happened before february 1st because justice arthur Agoron's really prompted he promised it before february 1st that you're going to get his order and we have new york attorney general letitia james requesting at least 370 million dollars in damages in the civil fraud case against donald trump when you add pre-judgment interest and penalties at about 9 to 10% per year compounded. That's how I get to that $500 million number, because you have the statute of limitation goes back about six years. So I can see it being $500 million. But see, not only do I think when that order hits, is the headline going to be $500 million, or let's just say it's $370 million, because that's a lot of money. You also have these issues that retired federal judge Barbara Jones has identified a lot of other fraudulent conduct or inconsistent statements, erroneous statements, incomplete statements, as she likes to say, regarding the Trump organization, not historically, during the past 14 months since her appointment in November of 2022, where she's been preparing reports from that date forward, she says, quote, I have identified certain deficiencies in the financial information that I have reviewed, including disclosures that are either incomplete, present results inconsistently, and or contain errors. And in one footnote, Judge Jones, notes a potentially fraudulent loan scheme by Donald Trump. And she suggests that Donald Trump may have falsified disclosures by fabricating the existence of a loan worth $48 million that was purportedly being parked in an entity controlled 100% by Donald Trump called Chicago Unit Acquisitions, LLC. And apparently this Trump entity had a springing loan or bad boy loan with Donald Trump, so claiming that Donald Trump was a bad borrower, so that's why there was a springing loan to begin with. But it turns out that... Exactly. They're saying that Donald Trump, as taking a loan from this company, was not a good borrower based on (laughs) Donald Trump owning Chicago Unit Acquisitions, LLC. But it turns out that this loan never even existed. And so what seems what took place is that when Donald Trump sued Deutsche Bank and Fortress after the Chicago skyscraper deal ended in massive litigation, they forgave a huge amount of debt. And Donald Trump claimed he acquired the debt and put it in Chicago unit acquisition, so he didn't have to pay income tax on the loan forgiveness. But that that never actually happened. The debt was never acquired. It was just forgiven. So it may be, we need more data, another tax avoidance scheme that I think Justice Arthur Ngoron is going to want to look into, as will New York Attorney General Letitia James. So, in addition to the headline of 370 million to 500 million, look at a very robust monitorship. Yeah of Judge Barbara Jones or somebody like that, monitoring and having all of these powers to always call out Donald Trump if he engages in any manipulation. So if Trump tries to hide anything, that there can be immediate injunctive relief right before Justice Arthur and Goran to issue orders right away if Trump tries to do anything like that. So. That's going to even penalize Donald Trump in many ways as much as the monetary damages. So let's be on the lookout for that. But in terms of justice from these civil cases, I mean, we're right where we thought we were going to be by February 1, what we've been telling everybody. Just wait, February 1. So I hope everybody's at least appreciated that we didn't lead you astray in our updates. And we pretty much predicted almost to the dollar amount where these things were going to net out, Brett. And, of course, uh, Trump took the report of uh, potential financial fraud quite well and was understanding, and and no, of course not. Donald Trump lashed out at the court-appointed monitor today. Uh, His lawyer sent this totally wacky letter accusing her uh, remember, the projection is strong in this one, accusing her of just simply wanting to stick around to make more money, demanding that she be fired. Yeah, because that's going to be the immediate move once she identifies all these problems with your financial, uh, with your financials. It's- During the civil fraud case, they're going to go, oh, you have a problem that she identified That's up. Oh, you want her fired? Oh, okay. Okay, okay, Mr. Trump, sure. You want her fired? I understand. You don't yeah, like and-, and he's asking in Goron. Yeah, he's <laughs> asking in Goron who he attacks every single day. And at a certain point, like, I mean, he's not going to, but he has to realize on some level that antagonizing the jury, antagonizing the judge, probably not the best idea for your own fate. I mean, it just got him completely destroyed in this E. Gene Carroll verdict. It's going to get him destroyed again in this verdict. And this sort of behavior is not going to play well in federal criminal court later this year. He's setting himself up or utter, utter disaster. I mean, he called Barbara Jones self-serving. He said her report was full of hyperbole. Like, it's just so disgu- it's lacks disgusting. basic competency. This is one of the most, Brett, in, in my <laughs> design, one of the most distinguished, independent, retired federal judges in the entire country. One of the most sought-after people for financial monitorships. By the way, who Donald Trump was involved in selecting her to be the monitor in this case. She probably has a waiting list for two or three years of people who want to hire her. Probably makes millions of dollars in a year. Probably doesn't even want this case. It's probably more of a headache for her, but she believes she's doing some sort of civic duty in handling this case for Justice Arthur and Goron. And that is who he's lashing out on and saying she lacks basic competency. When I read that, I was like, whoa, that is the last person yeah, It's they like they it's offensive. A they always go straight to like offending the person also. It's not just like we disagree, we respectfully disagree. It's like attack them on a deeply personal level. And I just don't understand the le- there is no legal strategy. I I don't get it. And that's because there's no good lawyers who want to represent him. People have seen that MAGA stands for make attorneys, get attorneys. And one of the things about our judicial system, why it's so important and why MAGA wants to attack it so hard, is that it is a place where evidence and facts matter. It is free as much as possible from the MAGA propaganda that spews incessantly from Fox and these right-wing media channels. Evidence has to be admissible. You have to make deadlines. You have to assert your defenses. You're under penalty of perjury. There are real consequences to your action. There, it's like kryptonite to MAGA. It's not kryptonite to real Republicans and independents and Democrats, because if you follow the rules, it's kryptonite to criminals. (laughs) If you follow the rules, you should be on an equal footing and you can put forward your evidence and there could be a fight over the evidence and what the law stands for. I've just never seen a situation where you constantly attack every judge, the financial monitor attack the judge's law clerk. They love attacking the law clerks. It is some of the most unhinged and bizarre behavior. And I just think one of the things that the country is seeing right now, though, again, is that this MAGA movement is a movement, not of power, of weakness and whiny and complaining. And I think more and more, We've been talking about it now for, what, Brett, two years here with the Midas Mighty? This pro-democracy community coalescing around democracy and normalcy. It was why I was really honored, and I hope you all enjoyed it, the conversation I had with Governor Hutchinson, the former Republican governor of Arkansas. And there are some people who may be upset that I did that interview. I don't know if you are or aren't, but I thought it was important to show as an example that we can find areas of agreement. We can have civil discussions in a way that you just can't with MAGA people. And, and I wanted to lead by example and show that that was possible, and I think it was possible there. And I think we had respectful disagreements, and again, there are areas where I probably vehemently disagree with Governor Hutchinson. but. I think we handled it in a respectful. way. Let me just show you a quick clip of that interview, but I'll tell everybody, go back and watch that interview if you have the opportunity here. Let's, let's play this clip. Governor, do you think Donald Trump is an actual conservative? Do you think Donald Trump is like an actual Republican in the party that you know?
3: No, no. Uh, and it's not just about uh, the fact that he's made it about personality over principle. But it it's also because uh, his, uh, his policies are wrong. Uh, whenever you talk about the traditional Republican Party has believed in the concept of free trade, the United States can compete on a global marketplace. He wants to put a ring around of America. 10% tariff uh, on Canada, on Great Britain, on our allies as they uh, try to sell goods to the United States of America that hurts our consumers. That's not conservative. His spending is not conservative. And then literally his isolationist on the global stage uh, is is not in the traditions of the Republican Party. And my concern is that uh, public service, which I've engaged in, uh, is about the public good. He has made it about his personal ego, and that is redefined uh, the Republican Party into the Trump Party. Now, I say that I hope that we can reverse that this year and we can win this fight and we can restore integrity and character as a serious element in the Republican Party. Obviously, I tried to make that case running for president of the United States, and I was not successful. But this battle is going to have to continue into the convention. And Nikki Haley is doing a good job of sounding the alarm. I've endorsed her. Uh, of what you've outlined as challenges in a Donald Trump presidency and his abandonment of true conservative policy. You heard what he said there, that this is going to go through the convention.
1: Through the convention. And I wonder if Nikki Haley's looking at all of Donald Trump's mounting legal problems, potential bankruptcy, cognitive issues, and saying... I should stick around no matter what here because he is disintegrating very, very quickly. And I want to share some of those clips with everybody of Trump in Vegas where, I mean, he went up there, you know, and I was like, you know, and, uh, this may be rude. I don't know about Trump. I'm not sure you can be rude. You know, I'm like, this is like, like, this is like Shamu at SeaWorld. Like, like, everybody, I passed the cognitive post. You all can't pass it. 98% of you would fail this cognitive test. And this is part of his speech. He goes around the country praising insurrectionists, talking about a song he made with them, and bragging about passing cognitive tests. And then when he talks about the military, you know, he's like, you know, I spoke with this world leader about our missile system. And then he goes, and I was like, ding, ding dong, a whoosh, ding dong, ding dong, a whoosh, whoosh. Ding, ding, whoosh, whoosh, and I'm like watching somebody on stage, and I'm like, I'm like, yo, this is the least normal thing I've ever like. <laughs> this is just the, this is come like pinch, pinch. Are we is this real life? Yes. So I want to show you, I want to show you more of that. And once again, I want to wish congratulations to our baby brother Jordy, who is a new dad. Jordy, congratulations! Wow, wow, wow! We'll be right back after our first quick break. If you're like most people on planet Earth, you enjoy a good cup of coffee. I just found a new product to put in my coffee that has all these awesome benefits called 4 Wellness. You have to try it out. This podcast is sponsored by 4 Wellness. 4 Wellness is a functional food brand with a unique range of snacks and supplements that are designed to help you get the most out of your body and mind. Their best-selling product, The Good Stuff, is a performance coffee supplement that supercharges the natural benefits of your coffee with just one scoop enjoy better focus reduce the caffeine jitters increase your collagen and support fat burning with the power of the good stuff's five key ingredients l-theanine collagen mct cinnamon and himalayan salt on top of that the good stuff helps you ditch the bad stuff like sugar dairy and artificial creamers for wellness was founded by world-renowned performance coach dave phillips who's worked with some of the world's highest performing athletes because he saw his athletes struggling with their health and in need of a simple delicious way to get functional ingredients into their daily routines now dave is bringing his unique insight from the pro sports world to you with Four wellness i already talk about coffee enough with my brothers and annoy them by going on and on and on and guess what now i get to do that twice as much by bragging about my for wellness every day and not only tastes great but it makes me feel great as well for wellness also offers superfood focus bites a delicious snack that literally tastes like a chocolate brownie except it's made from nootropics like lion's mane mushroom and cacao it also has amazing benefits like fighting inflammation and supporting brain and gut health plus they offer tart cherry recovery gummies which help combat muscle soreness coffee pods and more amazing products that you could work into your daily routine and 4wellness offers a 60-day money-back guarantee so what do you have to lose so If you drink coffee, it's time to give 4Wellness a try. Head to 4wellness.com slash Midas and use code Midas for 25% off your order. Once again, that's 4wellness.com backslash M-E-I-D-A-S for 25% off. And make sure to use my promo code Midas so they know I sent you. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Are your teeth aging you? Popular food and drinks are known to stain teeth. Beverages like coffee, tea, and wine stain them over time. So what can you do to brighten your smile? Well, you should give Smile Actives a try. Smile Actives is safe, effective, easy to use, and will keep you smiling proudly, as you probably already know. I'm a big tea drinker like many people. You may be a coffee drinker, and over time I noticed my teeth lose some of their brightness that I was used to seeing. 97% of Smile Active's users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average, all within 30 days. Simply add Smile Active's Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste that's been formulated with. PolyClean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into the teeth's grooves and crannies to get better whitening. Smile Actives makes teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth. So no change in your routine, no extra time, and no more messy strips, trays, or lights. People will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in just days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Here's what you got to do. Visit SmileActives.com Midas today to receive a special buy one, get one free offer with auto delivery plus free shipping and handling. That's SmileActives.com slash Midas. L E. A-C-T-I-V-E-S dot com slash Midas, M-E-I-D-A-S. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
4: Do work that makes Phoenix work. Apply today at phoenix.gov slash jobs.
1: See site for details. We're back live here, Midas Touch Podcast. Ben and Brett, once again, congratulations to our baby brother, Jordy, for his new baby. We can't give the name yet. Jordy wants to do that on his terms. Very, very secretive of that, that in the comments. Yes, yes. Very secretive, Jordy, but he will release the name on his own terms, and we will we will figure uh, that out. You know, Brett, when I would go downtown L.A., um, to downtown L.A., to my office there, um, there was somebody there, you know, who kind of clearly, you know, had issues, and, and, and I mean this in a very serious way. And the individual, I, I believe, um, you know, did not have a home. And the person referred to himself as Dr. Alien. And it's just a true story, you know. And Dr. Alien, uh, he would show up, that's what he would refer to himself as. And as you would, you know, he'd be on the corner of where the office was and would kind of just shout out these things over and over again, you know, as you were kind of walking into, you know, the, the office. And whether it was kind of making sounds and repeating the things you know over and over and over again you know and and it w- it it reached a level where it was serious and where we could you know offer help and the health services in LA you know weren't great we would do our best to try to do whatever we can um you know but and i i i mean this like in 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 a serious way like when you see donald trump go through whatever he's kind of going through right now um you know we you know I, I I'm seeing this over but let me just show you if we can a quick clip Brad if, if, we, if we've got one right now just just let's show a clip from from the event
0: go uh, these are not muscle guys here they're muscle guys up here right and they calmly walk to us say ding 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 they've only got 17 seconds to figure this whole thing out right bomb okay missile launch Ping, boom it's the most un- it's the
1: most un- yeah, Brett, that was New Hampshire. And then, Brett, maybe walk us through what was happening in Vegas. Well, let's hear in uh, Vegas Donald Trump speak about his cognitive exam and telling the crowd, you know what, it actually wasn't that easy. I
0: said, is it tough? He said, yeah, it's a tough test. The first couple of questions are easy, like they'll have a lion, a giraffe, a whale, and a shark. And they'll say, which one's the lion, Okay. And that's all the press covered, the first question. They didn't cover the last question. Multiply 4,733. Multiply times seven. Divide without paper and pencil, by the way. Divide it by four. Add up another 37 and a half, point five. I remember that. Now, what's your number? How many people in this room could do it? Not too many. Or they give you six names in a row. I took a lot of heat on this. They give you six names in a row. At the beginning sir i'm gonna give you six names good they look at him a chair a hat a badge a necklace and they vote those things we're gonna give you six things and i say good what's going on can you rename them so i name them then they go back and if you can do it in order that's even better i do them in order perfect then they come back to you 30 minutes later at the end last question they say, what were those six things? That there aren't too many people, and I get, they laughed, everyone said, oh, oh that's so easy. There's only about uh, 2% of this room can do it, but I did it. I did it very easily, but I got mocked. They said, oh, that's so easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. Go home and try doing it, okay? Go uh-huh. home.
1: It's not easy. By the way, Brett, does the mic sound better right now? I was seeing some of the comments before. Is it better? You, you are back in sync, and it's all good now. All right, we fixed that during that clip right there. Do we have another clip of him? That was the first cognitive at the time he talked about it there. Doesn't he talk about it again there as well? Br- I mean, nearly the entire time. This is him yeah. saying that, yeah. he, like, like it was most of the speech. This is him saying that he couldn't possibly uh, have dementia. And here's why. I said to him, you know, Ronnie, I'd
0: like to take a cognitive test. I never heard of it before, but whatever it is. I like tests. I've always liked tests. Tests are very interesting. And, uh, you know, I had an uncle, he's the longest-serving professor, Dr. John Trump, in the history of MIT. Same genes, we have genes, we're smart people. We're smart people, you know? We're like race, Mr. Lieutenant Governor, we're like racehorses too, you know? The fast ones produce the fast ones, and the slow ones doesn't work out so well, right? But we're we're no different in that sense.
1: Even the ideology there about his views on genetics and racehorses and comparing, you know, is, is, is very Nazi-esque, like his, yeah. his view right there. Um, and, you know, for, for him to go up there, I mean, again, this is the centerpiece of his 2024 campaign. I like tests. I like to take the tests. And I'm really smart because I have a family member who's at, who's at MIT. And I took the test. I passed the test. I passed the test twice. You couldn't pass the test. You couldn't do it. I did it. 98% of you cannot pass the test. I mean, that, that's, that's his speech. That's what he's doing. And by the way, it, it would be sad, and I would potentially feel bad. My urge is to feel bad for this, but this is someone who is causing so much harm to our country and also— Everybody, all the legacy media seems to normalize it. I'm like, he's up there saying, I take tests, tests. You heard me. I take two tests. Cognitive. I'm like, this is, this is some really weird crap. This is some strange, dangerous stuff right now. It's, it's utterly bizarre. And then like he always insults his audience. It's like one of the weird things that he does, and then they applaud. He goes, "Only two percent of you could pass that test. <laughs> Only two percent of you could identify an elephant. Go home, try it. I bet you can't do it." He like kind of taunts
5: them, and, and they go,
1: "Woo!" And then it gets really hard. Like they don't let you have a pencil. They don't let you even have paper, which they let you have both a pencil and a paper. So he just lies about that, and they ask you, "Do fifty thousand million trillion divided by?" 14,03367 to the 8th power. And I did it. And I did it. And it's like, "Okay, what are what are you even talking about?" And again, why why isn't there just this like threshold before we even get to like complex policy or not even complex, simple policy. If somebody's up there doing that, Stop gaslighting me into trying to believe that that has any modicum of normalcy. It is sad, it is pathetic, and it is embarrassing. And not only that, Brett. then you have like the legacy media also that's afraid to report on things that are in these government reports. And then when they report on it, they try to give it like a Biden. Connection. So you see Donald Trump's behavior there. And Donald Trump also always talks about it. It's always projection and confession, right? He's always like, well, the reason that President Biden must be doing good speeches, speeches is that he's jacked up on drugs. He's got all this drugs that they're injecting into him. That must be what's taking place. They're, he's always being injected with drugs. That's why he's so str- Like, first off, why is Trump talking about that in his speeches? Why is he so obsessed with that? But did, we did a whole video on this, how the Trump White House... Came an actual pill mill. Like there's nothing that they do that's lawful. They turned the White House into a pill mill, and they were dispensing like really hard drugs in massive quantities in the White House. Massive amounts of fentanyl, Versed, Ambien, Ketamine, Hydrocodone. I mean, look at the list right here. This is a list this is just, just one some serious this is stuff. one page this is just a small sample from the inspector general DoD report and then um, like copious DOD. copious DOD. amounts of these drugs right like a large sum Redigious like you look at the amount, amounts of drugs massive quantities two thousand <laughs> pills of drugs ambience. that are given in operating rooms why are they being passed out in the Trump White House? To people who shouldn't have access to these things, it violates all protocols, like this is not how it would be dispensed even in a hospital or through legitimate pharmacists. And this was all being done at the White House. That's just a small sample that was in the Inspector General report that was just released called Evaluation of the DOD Internal Controls Related to Patient Eligibility and Pharmaceutical Management. Within the National Capital Region Executive Medicine Services. And this report basically determined there wasn't a problem anywhere other than in the White House, the Trump White House. And yet the NBC headline said, like, before Biden. Like, they couldn't even say, like, this was happening during the Trump White House. Like, do you remember when there was like trace amounts of cocaine found in the visitor center? The Visitor Center, where tens of thousands of people show up each day or week, that's where they found trace amounts, and Fox made that their story every single day. And you have fentanyl and ketamine and all of this ambient and ProVigil and Versed, all in- – Hard drugs, operating room type drugs that are on this list as well, that are being dished out to Trump White House officials by the thousands. The only part that's redacted is who it was ordered by and received by, but it was ordered by a senior military official assigned to the White House, and then who it's received by is redacted here. This type of stuff is not being reported like anywhere else and where it is, they're not just show me what's happening. Right. Right. Brett. Like this is some absurd stuff. Yeah. I mean, to I put the Biden administration in a headline like this by NBC it is completely egregious and a complete abdication of their journalistic duty. But these are like it's not just a little bit of drugs. This is a whole lot of drugs, a whole lot of incredibly strong, powerful, powerful, powerful drugs that we have going on here at the trump white house i would love to see the overlap Uh, i know we're not going to be able to i would love to see the overlap between the trump officials and these MAGA republicans who who go there's fentanyl coming across the border look at all this fentanyl coming across the border and the people who are ordering fentanyl from within the white house itself it almost seems like the white house is a greater source of these drugs than the border is. like That's where our concern had to be. The Trump White House, the epicenter of drugs in America, when you look at this report, it follows every fascist playbook also, though literally the playbook, blitzed. The, the book by Norman Hunter, uh-huh. Drugs in the Third Reich, how Hitler and all the Nazis were always drugged up on all of these super hard drugs. I mean, the types of stuff they were dispensing at the White House, like candy, is reserved for operating rooms. I tell everybody go back and take a look at the hot take I did on. I spend 18 minutes going through each page of this. No, Does it make a little make it? Does it make a little bit of sense to you though? When you're like, oh, they're all on drugs. Like, oh, okay, everything makes sense. Yeah, right? It all you're opens like, it up. Yeah, you're like, oh, okay, okay, now, now, like it's a clarity. It's like a lens snapping into focus. You're like, oh okay now i understand and if, if all you remember uh you know dr ronnie jackson who was the white house doctor for donald trump what was his nickname his nickname was the candy man his nickname was the candy man because he used to dispense drugs to all the staff at the white house so like these are the people who we're dealing with that's the guy by the way who donald trump cites as saying he says i'm the healthiest person on the planet He says, I'm healthier than Obama. He says, I live to 150. I'm perfect cognitively, like all these things. These are the people who are running the country. And it would be worse in a second term. Like that's nothing compared to what it would be in a second term. There's a whole other inspector general report on Ronnie Jackson's behavior. He was accused of sexual harassment. He was accused of other misconduct as well. There was one woman who talked about how he would show up in the middle of the night and knock on her door when they were traveling abroad, begging to be let into her room. And she thought that was so utterly inappropriate. And you see these patterns repeat itself over and over again. And what we do here at the Midas Touch Network is like, I'm just reading the report. Like, I'm just sharing with you what is said and and how is this not a front page story? That there were massive amounts, massive amounts, morphine, fentanyl, ketamine being dispensed like candy in the Trump White House. I guarantee you, if that was happening with Biden or with Obama, not only it would be impeachment time, absolutely absolutely frequently. And how do I know that? Because they go after him and try to impeach him based on Hunter Biden's struggles with drug addiction, who wasn't even in the White House during the relevant period of time. It has nothing to do with President Biden's policies at all. Anyway, I digress there. But when you watch Donald Trump's behavior on stage, Brett, that was the point I wanted to make. Oh, this all makes sense now. (laughs) That was Uh, the point I was looking at. I get it, man. I get get what's going on. I see what's happening. Oh, he goes ding-dong, ding-dong, whatever he says. Okay, anyway, here Donald Trump is praising MAGA Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House's coffee boy, for blocking border security. Here, play this clip. I
0: I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. A bad bill you can't have, and that's what was happening in the house. As you know, the speaker, who's, by the way, if I think he's gonna prove to be a very good speaker, it's tough when you have a very small majority. Very tough. Mike Johnson, speaker, he just said it's dead on arrival in the House. It's dead on arrival. We want either a strong bill or no bill, and whatever happens, happens. But this is the single greatest threat to our country right now
1: is the people pouring into our country. The single greatest threat, but do not pass any bill to address the issue. I would like to keep on whining about this like a loser and complain about it rather than actually take action. Because I believe for MAGA Republicans or actually for Trump, it's a winning issue. I mean, how put this I'll, I'll say this? If if they were really being genuine and there was truly in their words, an invasion, then you'd probably need to do something immediately. It's not something and and you have the Republicans now openly saying this. We're gonna wait until the election because we think Trump is gonna be president and we're gonna wait for him. We wanna hurt President Biden. they don't say president biden but they go we want to hurt biden like they openly are just admitting that if this were truly the emergency that they say it is then they would take action right now and president biden has put forth uh, well he he's signed on he said that he would b- b- happily sign the bill that the senate is working on which is like one of the strongest immigration bills i think ever in the history of the country it's like stuff that trump was asking for while trump was in the white house and you even have you have republican senators saying that directly the ones who actually want to pass this thing and yet you have president biden calling their bluff here on the border we'll get into some of the details on that in a bit and what do they do they go absolutely not because we don't want to give biden a win and here is donald trump again Again, saying that he does not want the Republicans to pass this bill. Maybe
0: eight times
1: that amount. We cannot let this happen to our country. As the
0: leader of our party, there is zero chance I will support this horrible open borders betrayal of America. It's not going to happen. I noticed that, and I'll fight it all the way. I noticed a lot of the senators, a lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay, please blame it on me, please. Because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. And I'll tell you what, a bad bill is, I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. A bad bill you can't have. And
1: that's what was happening in the House. By the way, he put together actual sentences. Still, when you listen to it, it's just kind of gibberish words (laughs) together. He's not speaking in full sentences, and he's just – everything's like, that's bad. It's bad. Do not pass it. That is bad. Do not pass the bad bill. It is bad, okay? It is bad. Do not do it. And it's like, what do you even – there's no detail. There's no – it is so humiliating to watch. And it's just such an odd thing to actually have someone leading the Republican Party who is trying to destroy the country each and every day, who's like inflicting real harm on our country, whether it's the border or supporting Ukraine, because he thinks that it's a winning issue to try to cause us all harm. It's sad, and it needs to be reported that way because that's what he's telling us. He's saying it out loud. Yeah, and the good thing is, at least finally, 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 that Nikki Haley is fighting back for this man. Hello,
0: Kuston Morkan. So is up to hmm.
6: Could the
2: dollar be replaced by an alternative reserve currency? Oh, Should that happen, your buying power and retirement savings could be gutted this is Michael Papak, and this is Legal AF After Dark. This coming week, the hits just keep on coming for Donald Trump on the heels of an eighty-three and a half million Yay. dollar jury verdict. We're waiting on a five hundred million dollar plus judgment against him by Judge Engoron in the New York State Supreme Court for the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case against Donald Trump and all his little Trumper executives with his last name. We'll break down what we think is going to happen and what were the most recent, most recent bad facts and bad acts by Donald Trump that will be used by the judge against him in the resulting order. We break it all down one place on Midas Touch, on Legal AF, and here's a clip. We expect uh, next
1: week that Federal, uh, sorry, Justice Arthur Ngoron is going to issue his order. The uh, New York State Court judge, Justice Arthur and will issue his order after uh, the uh, significant trial that took place before him. That was a bench trial. It was not before a jury, although for all of Donald Trump's complaining that uh, he would have liked to be before a jury, Trump keeps on losing over and over again whenever he's before juries. But Um, Justice N. previously announced that he was going to release his uh, order sometime before February 1st. New York Attorney General Letitia James is requesting approximately $370 million in damages against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, also requesting uh, injunctive relief uh, to stop or bar Donald Trump from ever conducting business again in the state of New York, especially in the real estate sector um, and seeking a five-year ban on Don Jr. and Eric from being involved in real estate. Um, New York Attorney General Letitia James has already prevailed regarding her uh, prior claim as to the dissolution of the Trump Organization, where Justice N'Goran ruled in uh, the favor of the New York Attorney General's Office that, based on the systemic and persistent uh, fraud, and the fact that there were no disputed facts that the Trump organization would be dissolved, that's currently uh, under appeal. But that's paused while we wait for Justice Arthur and order here as to the remaining causes of action, which include the disgorgement, the return of ill-gotten gains. That's what disgorgement is, return of that money that you basically took improperly from the state of New York based on your uh, conduct into that. Letitia James is requesting $370 million, but when you add um, the prejudgment interest at approximately 9 or 10% per year compounding, you know, you can get up to around $500 million when you add up the total of the interest, plus penalties, plus the $370 million New York Attorney General Letitia James uh, is requesting there, and we expect that order to be handed down next week. So two major developments, though, in this past week um, that I think are very worth uh, reporting. Both are going to be helpful to New York Attorney General Letitia James and also helpful to Justice Arthur and Goron in crafting an order that will survive appeal first, there was a Second Circuit Court of Appeal decision that was reached in a case involving Martin Schreckelli. You remember Martin Schreckelli? He's the farmer bro. He went to jail. He was he testified before Congress and invoked the Fifth, and um, he had raised the prices of various pharmaceutical drugs like the antiparasitic Daraprim um, to like thousand percent higher than it should. You know, than it should have been. Um, But anyway, under the New York Attorney General statute that is used uh, against. the pharmaceutical industry. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking to ban Donald Trump from the real estate industry and from doing business in New York. So Schreckelli's appeal and Schreckelli's case worked its way through the federal courts, not through the state court system, but nonetheless Schreckelli was challenging This executive law that's used by the New York Attorney General saying it's unconstitutional, it's improper, all of the arguments you'll expect that Donald Trump makes about this law. Notably, one of the things that Donald Trump says, too, right, which is false, which we've dispelled, is that this law has never been utilized before. They're targeting me with this law. This is the first time New York Attorney General, Letitia James, or New York Attorney General has used it before. That's not true. It's been used, actually, quite with a great degree of frequency, but it's been utilized a lot by the New York Attorney General's office over and over again. In fact, Donald Trump's own expert in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case um, testified in one such case that was brought by the New York Attorney General. So this, this has been utilized before. So the fact that Kelly lost to the, in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, where they said, nope, we affirm the district court's ruling that this statute by New York that's being utilized by the New York Attorney General is proper, that the remedy here of disgorgement against Schreckelli plus the permanent lifetime ban from the pharmaceutical injury is appropriately tailored, that's beneficial to New York Attorney General Letitia James. If you've been following Legal AF, we've talked about it here in the closing arguments, the New York Attorney General's office referenced that case, but there had yet to be a ruling by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And in fact, in fact, it would have been very bad to the New York Attorney General's office if the Second Circuit struck down that law and said it was improperly used with Scherkelli. But as soon as the Scherkelli decision was just handed down, what did New York Attorney General Letitia James do? Like any really good lawyer, immediately sent a letter who uh, immediately sent a letter to Justice Arthur and Goron informing Judge Ngoron of the decision reached by the Second Circuit. Now, the Second Circuit is not the appellate division in the state court system, it's in the federal system. So this is not binding authority on Justice Arthur and Goron, but we call it in the law persuasive authority. And the fact that it's happening in a federal court in New York I would say it's powerful, persuasive authority that shows that the New York Attorney General has the authority, and it's a recent case, to do the exact remedy that she is seeking against Donald Trump. So the Scherkelli ruling, I think, was a big one right there. And then we get this Barbara Jones letter. The retired Judge Barbara Jones, the independent monitor uh, who was appointed after – New York Attorney General Letitia James prevailed in an injunction back in uh, 2022. Um, judge Goran found Trump was engaged in ongoing issues and ongoing financial machinations that required somebody to oversee what was going on. And, Popak, you read this letter by Judge uh, Barbara Jones here. This is an independent judge. She was selected by Trump. Both parties selected her. This is someone with an impeccable reputation whose job was just to look through the books for the past 14 months. Her job isn't to, she's not a judge, right? She she doesn't make the ruling. She just reports on what she sees. And her letter says she's reviewed for the past 14 months. I've identified certain deficiencies in the financial information that I have reviewed, including disclosures that are either incomplete, present results inconsistently, and or contain errors. In addition, although while defendants have been cooperative, uh, uh, have been cooperative, information required to be submitted to me pursuant to the terms of the monitorship order and review protocol has at times been lacking in completeness and timeliness. I have previously reviewed these items with the Trump Organization, which has often agreed to modify the disclosures or implement processes that improve accuracy, transparency, and the timeliness of their disclosures. In other words, they're continuing to engage in this conduct. And then you read this footnote, Popak, that talks about footnote six, where they're talking about inconsistent disclosures, incomplete disclosures, and errors just over the past 14 months. Of particular note, I discussed the springing loan previously disclosed as being between Donald J. Trump individually and Chicago Unit Acquisition, an entity related to the Trump Chicago Tower, with the Trump Organization several times. When I inquired about this loan, I was informed that there were no loan agreements that memorialized the loan, but that it was a loan that was believed to be between Donald J. Trump individually and Chicago Unit Acquisition for $48 million. However, in recent discussions with the Trump Organization, it indicated that it has determined that the loan never existed and thus it would be removed from any upcoming form submitted to the Office of Government Ethics, and would also be removed from subsequent versions of the MAML, which stands for Material Assets and Material Liability. So a $48 million phantom loan sounds like fraud to me, and Popac Judge Jones, it's not her job to say this is fraud or not fraud, just to flag what she found. It's for New York Attorney General. Letitia James to characterize it a certain way and the judge to make rulings. But this happened since the filing. Finally, before I pass it to you, before all the legal efforts get upset, Popak was having some technical difficulties on his end, which is why I hogged this category. Otherwise, I would share and let Popak speak. So for anyone in the comments who are saying, let Popak speak, (laughs) I was doing Popak a solid right there. I'm going to let Popak take the full next topic after we talk about ben Judge Barbara Jones a, to make up for it. And
2: <laughs> let not have a Popok mute button. I, yeah. I, I assure you, I had some technical difficulties, as Ben outlined. We've got good news um, that we can report right on target, right, right right about what Ben said to start the podcast. Judge Angoran is going to be issuing his uh, order on Wednesday, court has announced this week, just as we said, waiting for the results of the uh, jury, the federal jury of the E.G. Carroll case, and waiting for this report that we're going over in detail by former Judge Barbara Jones. Judge Angkoran is ready to uh, having, I'm sure, as I said earlier in my analysis um, weeks ago, that he had most of that order um, written uh, at the time of the closing arguments a couple of weeks ago that went terribly for Chris Keis, the, the lawyer for Donald Trump. and. Uh, was just waiting to see if there was anything that he had missed in 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 uh, in eleven weeks of trial, in dozens of witnesses, in the experts, uh, so-called experts by Donald Trump, and in the thousands of pages of exhibits that he and yes, shout out to his principal law clerk, that he and his principal law clerk sifted through and coordinated, and um, and and um, analyzed. Uh, for the 11 weeks. It's not judges that are the bench trial judges and not the jurors for fact-finding. Don't wait until the very end in order to start drafting or um, coming up with their uh, final judgments. They are every day, they are noting things in the daily transcript of that trial about things that will be important to their ultimate decision Um, and, uh, and they're making notes and taking notes in real time that, that end up getting you know, uh, uh, weaved into their order. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that a couple of weeks after, less than a couple of weeks after the oral argument, he's ready to issue what what I expect would be a 15, 20, 25, whatever page, single-spaced as only Judge and Goran can do order against Donald Trump upwards upwards, I think closer to the 500 million that you talked about. And now he's got the judge has even more fodder and firepower, because even though the persistent fraud findings are for a period of time, not necessarily up to the moment, the monitoring as a remedy that he installed and will continue, obviously, to keep in place to make sure that there are controls over this New York corporation unless and until the time when they are dissolved, which is a separate matter. I guess, at the appellate court level, um, this only gives the judge, and I'm sure he will cite to it, that even today an organization that Donald Trump still heads and for which his, his children are still officers um, uh, and control officers is not being honest and truthful and forthright nor have proper controls in place in the company, even at the moment, even to the moment. And that demonstrates that they have no interest or desire um, to, run the, to run that organization in a way that's consistent with New York law and, um, and, and the judge's findings. And to your point about the law at the, uh, the Sch- Sch- Kelly case, I always get his name screwed up, Pharma bro, case that the Second Circuit came down with, although not directly on point, it does talk about the powers of a New York attorney general or attorney general to seek both disgorgement and industry banning. That that law that she's using has been on the books since 1956. Uh, Jacob Javits, for which there is a convention center named after him in New York, before he was a senator, was an attorney general, and he got that power back in 1956. That's how long that's been on the books. So if you don't like the way New York corporation law works, or you don't like the power of the attorney general, such as the NRA that incorporated in the early 1910s in New York or Donald Trump's organization, who was father incorporated in New York in the 1950s and 60s, then you move out and you go to states like the Santa's land in Florida, if you don't like that, where you don't have to worry about an attorney general going after you because they don't go after anybody, uh, especially on the mago world. But if you're going to stay in New York, this has always been a power. In fact, part of the power of disgorgement was was uh, embodied in a case involving the Trump Organization and Trump University. And so, you know, and, and the ability to declare persistent fraud and the powers that flow from that. So for Chris Keist to continue to get up, uh, they have this, this broken record. You know, Alina Hava can't stop saying, it's almost like a Tourette's. She can't stop saying First Amendment. Everything is First Amendment. First Amendment right to defame E. Jean Carroll. First Amendment right for my client to say anything he wants that pops into his head in a courtroom. First Amendment right for me to speak and not be banned and barred by the judge. And Chris Keist, the same thing. Everything there is you can't. Discorgement is not an appropriate remedy. There's no power to disgorge by way of the New York Attorney General. Look, Chris, I know you don't practice in New York regularly. You're a Florida lawyer, and therefore, you know, I would expect you to be more expert in Florida law. But you don't know what the heck you're talking about when it comes to the New York Attorney General. And if that's going to be your appeal, when the when the judge nails your client and cites the judge uh, and continues to cite to Judge Jones's monitoring, where she actually said buried in this fourteen pages, Ben, she actually said, "I wasn't really charged with figuring out whether they're committing fraud or not," and in I 10. right, and I. And I can't, and I'm not, I haven't been hired to do that, and I can't attest that they're not continuing to commit fraud. I can tell you there's control problems, I can tell you they make non material errors, including the, 40, the, the the $48 million phantom loan issue, that, that they haven't come back to me on certain of the errors, that they switched using a statement of financial condition and started using this MAML, this material assets thing, without getting lender approval. I don't know if that's proper or not. You know, and, and I'm still, they're still doing transactions behind my back that I have to then find with my team and report to you. This is not a a report card that you want if you're trying to convince a judge that you're on your best behavior and you shouldn't be dissolved and you no longer need to have a monitor over you. I mean, listen, I'll be frank. I've been involved with an organization it happens in financial services that has had, you know, sort of uh, other outside agencies that have wanted to put monitors over them and, and for a short period of time over certain parts of their business. And you better make sure you get a clean bill of health and straight A's on that report card or you're going to just buy a lifetime monitor. And, and until this company is either put out of its misery by a, the judge's order affirmed on appeal that it should be dissolved because it can't operate in any way other than in a criminal way, in a yeah. fraudulent way, then they're going to have this monitor in place for as long as possible.
1: You go back to the E. Gene Carroll case, he can't stop. That was one of the themes of Roberta Kaplan's close and Sean Crowley's and argument. He can't. You have to make him stop. He's incapable. There, there could be other trials. Of, he won't stop doing it unless you make him stop engaging in this defamatory behavior against his rape victim, right? Here in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case, it's a financial argument like that. He, he's incapable of not committing fraud. He, he continues to commit fraud over and over again and just can't be stopped. So, Judge, we have to use this law, which was just affirmed by the Second Circuit, because even during the period of the lawsuit, they kept on doing it. And again, while I think one of the headlines here is going to be a number because the numbers always get lots of headlines whether it's 370 million with penalties and prejudgment interest 500 million dollars we're going to be at half a billion dollars in judgments against donald trump by next week where he's going again to have to post a bond in new york like he's going to have to post a bond in the e Jean Carol. but look for i'm looking for popock the other aspects of justice arthur and goron's order where he's gonna talk about this continuing fraud and what's going to be done about it. Yes, he's ordered the dissolution. Yes, Trump will get banned from doing real estate in New York, but I suspect, just like you and I suspect that in Eeen Carroll there may be another lawsuit that's filed, an injunctive injunction to ban Trump from saying these things based on these verdicts, another defamation case. I think very quickly we could have another New York Attorney General investigation and case opened up like immediately because of that report that we are just talking about.
2: Ben. Before you move on on that note, she's about Letitia James can walk and chew gum at the same time. She's about to put the NRA out of business under the same set of statutes right now. You know, while the case was dark against Trump, she started her case, not with Judge Ingram, but with another judge but in the same, in the same uh, New York State Supreme Court, and her team can put on two major cases at the same time. That, and NRA and, and Wayne LaPierre are going to be barred and banned from ever doing business in New York again. The NRA tried to already move to a different state and reincorporate in Texas, but there still remains power of the New York Attorney General. And the NRA, which we thought was, in, was, was you know, impenetrable and uh, not, no harm could ever come to it in a case, Watch Letitia James in the same year as New York Attorney General take down Donald Trump for half a billion billion dollars, put him out of the real estate business, and do the exact same thing to the NRA. Well, if you like podcasts at the intersection of law, politics, and justice with lawyers who know what they're talking about, then you've come to the right place. Legal AF, the podcast. The title's exactly what you think, and there was an example. We do that times four, four different stories with lawyers. Analyzing based on their experience what's going on in the courtrooms around the country at that intersection. And we do it on Wednesdays and Saturdays, one place, the 2 million subscriber Midas Touch Network on a Legal AF podcast and then on audio podcast platforms of your choice. If you know about Legal AF already and you're already part of our audience, thank you for being there for us. Take that clip and send it to people that are near and dear to you or in your life and ask them to join us. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, is that possible? How is Legal AF? I'm Michael Popok. And join us every Wednesday and Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and then again on audio podcast platforms of your choice. So until my next hot take, until my next Legal AF, this is Michael Popok reporting. Love this video?
1: Make sure you stay up to date on the latest breaking news and all things Midas by signing up to the Midas Touch newsletter at MidasTouch.com newsletter.
0: good capability,
4: you can take on any road, even the ones that aren't roads. Kia,
0: movement that inspires.
7: Now reporting, David
6: Muir. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air with a major development in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into former President Trump. Former President Trump has been informed at this hour that he has been indicted by a federal grand jury regarding the special counsel's probe into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I want to bring in John Santucci who has covered Donald Trump for years from us. Uh, John, you have confirmed from multiple sources that the former
8: president and his legal team has been informed. David, my colleague Catherine Falders and I are told just moments ago, Donald Trump and his legal team received a call from special counsel Jack Smith's team informing them that the grand jury that was hearing a presentation by special counsel Jack Smith's team regarding trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election did return an indictment against the former president david he has been indicted in that investigation and david as we've been reporting here for some time it was just a little over two weeks ago now that a target letter was sent to former president donald trump informing him that he was a target of the special counsel's probe on 2020 election overturning efforts and the january 6th riot and it was just at the end of last week david that Trump's lawyers went in for a meeting with the special counsel to talk about that case. And now, just four business days later, that indictment has been returned by a federal grand jury in Washington.
6: John, stick with us here. Presumably, obviously, his legal team meeting with special counsel. We know Jack Smith was in that meeting just a couple of days ago. Uh, They were trying to make the case as to why the former president should not be criminally indicted in this case. Again, Jack Smith. Uh, working on parallel tracks here two criminal investigations now one involving the classified documents of mar-a-lago and now we have just learned that a federal grand jury has handed up so far a sealed indictment we don't know the actual charges in this indictment as of yet but if the target letter was any indication as to what could be coming here just moments from now these would be the most serious charges that Uh, any American president has ever faced, given the fact that it relates to the uh, alleged attempts to overturn a presidential election. Again, we don't have the list of charges yet. All we know is that that grand jury has handed up a federal criminal indictment that former President Trump and his legal team has been informed that this indictment has been handed up. I want to bring in our, our senior reporter, Catherine Falders, who works with our investigative team. And Catherine, you are among the reporters here on the team confirming that the former president has been reached. And again, I go back to that target letter, which strongly hinted at the kinds of charges that the former president could face here.
4: Yeah, it did. And we don't know, David, as you said, what charges or how many counts are in this indictment. But if the target letter, which you received two weeks ago is to be any sort of guide we know that those include some conspiracy charges conspiracy to defraud the united states for example is one of those but again important to emphasize we don't know this indictment is sealed we're learning this through sources and it's at this courthouse right behind me where this grand jury has been meeting for over a year now they met today uh, rather late there were lots of tea leaves to read inside this courthouse we saw jurors milling about going in and out leaving some prosecutors potentially were here. So what we know is that, that the four person was spotted inside this courthouse. And that's the only juror that they need to hand up this indictment to the judge. So that is what we're told happened. And we know that former president has been informed. His lawyers have been informed. They're also just waiting, of course, on this indictment to be unsealed.
6: Catherine Falders, John Santucci, both reporting at this hour. Uh, at least two separate sources here reporting the former president uh, has been Uh, informed that he has been criminally indicted involving January 6th and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Four counts we have just learned. Four counts in this federal criminal indictment. This is 45 pages long. I want to bring in our Chief
5: Justice Correspondent, Pierre Thomas, who is looking at it right now. Pierre, what do you know? David, we have these specific charges. United States of America versus Donald Trump. Conspiracy to defraud the United States government. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Obstruction and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against rights. We're going to be looking through this specifically, but basically this case is a speaking indictment laying out a case that Donald Trump was very clear that he lost the election and then proceeded to try to take the election from the American public. That's the generic case. We'll just have to read through the specifics and how they lay out the specifics, but it will be a speaking indictment laying out the case that Donald Trump was aware that he lost there was no wide-scale fraud he was clear on that and then took steps to stop the certification of joe biden as president of the united states and just for people watching our live coverage right
6: now donald trump now a second federal criminal indictment from the special counsel jack smith uh, many in the legal world dan abrams included have said that if there was an indictment in this case that this is even far more serious than the classified documents uh, at Mar-a-Lago. And and perhaps one of the reasons why, Pierre, you just lasered in on this notion that the former president knew that he lost the election, according to Jack Smith and federal prosecutors. That's the psychological component here, that he knew and yet continued to move forward with uh, strategy to to somehow hold on to
5: the White House. And, And David, we have to be careful until we read these specifics, but to be clear here, they're suggesting that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, in office was using the power of the presidency to retain power, to basically block the peaceful transfer of power. This is something that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, talked about over and over again, that they would hold anyone accountable who attempted to unlawfully block the peaceful transfer
6: of power. I want to bring in Dan Abrams, our chief legal analyst. Dan, when you hear these charges, four counts, conspiracy that defraud the United States obstruction of an official proceeding, and deprivation of rights, the right to vote that your vote would count. Yeah. Uh, these are very serious charges. Yeah,
9: and and, and now we, we have some detail as we read through this indictment in real time here. Um, a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit uh, to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government, that is the one uh, the defrauding of the United States, a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified. Um, that is another account, a conspiracy against the right to vote and have one's vote counted. That, that's that's more of a catch-all uh, one where it's been used a number of times in the 20th century, which is interesting that it's about voter fraud. Um, it, it's about basically saying, you know, in other cases where people were stuffing ballots, et cetera, and saying that deprived everyone else of the right to have the votes counted fairly. And that is now something that Donald Trump is being charged with uh, in this indictment, uh, which is one of the, the, uh, the, the big
5: picture pockets uh, that we have to look at here. And David, can I add one thing here? Um, they are clearly stating that the fake electors, this attempt to bring in fake electors, Uh, was part of a plan to defraud the American public with false statements to make them think that Trump, in fact, had won when he had lost. Pierre, I want
6: to read this for our viewers watching this. This is the indictment just in. And again, you heard Dan there uh, list uh, briefly what these four counts would be uh, after an initial readout from Pierre. But I just want to read the beginning of this uh, speaking indictment. You heard Pierre reference that. We have seen this before from Jack Smith. It's what they call... Uh, in essence, of speaking of that, it means to lay out in lay terms so that the rest of us and viewers, voters across this country, could, in essence, understand why Jack Smith and his team are taking this action carefully laid out here for people at home even to read, 45 pages. I'm not going to read it all, but I will read the very beginning. It says the defendant Donald J. Trump was the 45th president of the United States and a candidate for re-election in 2020. The defendant lost the 2020 presidential election, despite having lost. Jack Smith says the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following Election Day on November 3rd, 2020, the defendant spread lies that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false, and the defendant knew that they were false. John Carl, that is a significant part of Jack Smith's argument, and it goes to some of what the January 6th committee put before the American people, some of what you have reported... The psychology of the former president and those in his inner circle
7: who testified before the American people that this was a president who knew he lost. I mean, we remember the January 6th committee was almost entirely hearing from Republicans and many of those Republicans, people close to Donald Trump, who testified over and over again that they told him that the election was over and that he he had lost. David, I had a, a very senior Republican in that Congress Tell me just about a week or so after the election, he is a man who knows he lost, and it is hard on him. Uh, but, but I want to tell you, there are also six co-conspirators that are listed in this. They are not named, but they are described. Four of them are lawyers. One of them is a Justice Department official, and another is a political consultant, all being described as helping him to implement this scheme. And this, again, this is not just about the attack on the capitol on january 6th this is about a coordinated comprehensive effort led by the president of the united states to overturn an election that he knew he lost
6: let me just take this one step further dan and then i'll bring it to you because jack smith lays this out very carefully he, i had mentioned that in this indictment he says the defendant knew that these claims were false but the defendant repeatedly and widely disseminated them anyway To make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger and erode public faith in the administration of the election. I
9: was just going to say the indictment goes state by state and basically talks about exactly what Donald Trump did and said, because that's the key. Right. I mean, you you can make an allegation about the fake electors. Right. And say uh, these people, for example, some of them have been charged in Michigan uh, for their conduct. But you still have to show Donald Trump's role in this, that he knew what he was doing and that he was actually taking actions in connection with this. And the indictment goes through point by point about the calls he was making, uh, calling uh, the leaders in Arizona, calling leaders uh, in Michigan, etc. cetera. And, and that's the key here is to, to be looking for Donald Trump himself's actions, not just the broader we've known for a long time about the issue of these electors. The question's
6: always been exactly what did Donald Trump do? They said they actually make the point, though, in this indictment, and I want to add here, that the defendant, Donald Trump, had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election that he had won. He can claim that, they say. He's entitled to formally challenge the results of the election lawfully through appropriate means. But they go on to say, indeed, in many cases, the defendant did pursue these methods, I should say, of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. And in many cases, John, as we reported
7: on numerous occasions, these were Republican-appointed judges who said, there's nothing here. Most of them, many, some of them appointed by Trump himself. Uh, but what is significant here also is it outlines who told Trump. That what he was doing and what he was saying was untrue. And it's pretty comprehensive. We've known some of this, but they go through the defendant's vice president. By the way, the role of Vice President Pence is is critical in this indictment. The pressure that Trump put on Pence to use his power in presiding over the certification of those ballots on uh, January 6th is critical here. But the vice president told him it was wrong. Senior Justice Department's officials that he had appointed to the Justice Department told him that the election was not stolen. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, senior White House attorneys, uh, senior uh, staffers on his own re-election campaign, uh, state legislatures and officials, almost all of them Republicans, uh, told him, no, the election was not stolen, the results are certified, we have no power to overturn it. And he continued to persist in pressuring them to use their positions to overturn an election that was over. An extraordinary list of names and figures very close to the former president who repeatedly
6: told him that he had lost the election. We know that Mike Pence, the former vice president, sitting across from me, I I, I point blank said, did you tell the president he lost? We lost here. And he said on numerous occasions I made that very clear to the former president. I want to bring in Aaron Kotursky because this, uh, as we said before, this speaking indictment, uh, goes into state by state here. One of the states it talks about is Georgia and the according to Jack Smith and it's been reported out uh, publicly the intense pressure on elections officials in Georgia uh, to find the votes a, a state that Joe Biden won. Uh, we do have a piece of the audio of former President Donald Trump, that key telephone call uh, that has been uh, heard by the American people before but that will play a role in this case. Let's listen to that audio and then I'll bring in Aaron.
0: So Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state.
6: 11,780 votes. I just want to find those votes. Let's bring in Aaron Kutersky. And Aaron, this indictment uh, speaks to Georgia as well. In fact, it
10: includes a transcript of that very phone call that former President Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State. And it goes into detail about other things that the former president said to him, including claiming that 5,000 dead people voted in Georgia. And Raffensperger's response saying, well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. And the American people heard much of this during the course uh, of the January 6th committee hearings uh, up on Capitol Hill, just a few blocks from from where I'm standing now. There's also Arizona, what happened in Arizona, where Trump, according to the indictment, and co-conspirator one, who sounds an awful lot like Rudy Giuliani, uh, asserted, among other things, that non-citizens, non-residents, and dead people had fraudulently voted in Arizona, all part, David, of what this 45-page indictment calls a criminal scheme to overturn an election
6: that the former president knew he lost. It talks about the conspiracy of uh, this scheme, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron Katursky, our investigative reporter. It did say in this indictment, in terms of the conspiracy, uh, from November 14th, 2020, through on or about January 20th of 2021, uh, in the District of Columbia and elsewhere, the defendant Donald J. Trump did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with co-conspirators Uh, known and unknown to the grand jury to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified uh, by the federal government. Uh, john
7: carl I want to bring uh, you in on what
6: you found here in the indictment as well
7: well it, it again going state by state by state so we know the georgia case we've covered it so much we've heard that phone call over again we we know what happened in arizona where the republican speaker of the house rusty bowers actually uh, had meetings with with rudy giuliani uh, and asked rudy giuliani well, where is the evidence that the election was stolen cited in this indictment is the famous line from rusty bowers uh, "We we have theories we don't have evidence uh, but it's also interesting to look at Michigan. One of the things that we heard Donald Trump say over and over again was that there were, uh, that there were vo- votes that came in, ballot dumps of illegal votes that came in late in the night that overturned uh, the election results in, in Michigan. This is something that he still repeats. And it points out that the attorney general at the time, Bill Barr, uh, told uh, one of the defend- co-defendants in this case and Trump himself in a very famous meeting, no. There was nothing irregular about what happened with how the votes came in in Michigan. So it goes over, frankly, David, a lot of material that we've heard before. I mean, much of this played out in the January 6th committee. Uh, Much of this has been reported out. uh, We've done a lot of it here on on ABC News. But it is bringing together the evidence uh, that that Trump not only was lying about what happened in these states, but that he knew he was lying because he had been told uh, by people – uh, who were very close to him, who had investigated in it uh, his allegations, and told him that they were not true. John Carl with us
6: here at the desk, along with Pierre Thomas, Mary Bruce, Stan Abrams. It's about uh, 14 minutes before 6 o'clock now. We've been told that the special counsel himself, uh, Jack Smith, will be addressing the American people. Uh, we know from the past he does not come before the camera very often. The only other time, in fact, that we saw him was after the federal criminal indictment involving the classified documents case. Again, we will hear from him today. Now, just a matter of minutes after the indictment uh, has been unsealed uh, more quickly than we saw him last time, though. Uh, if if last time indicates what we will see this time, it will be uh, brief, uh, very forward. But again, uh, what he tried to do was encourage the American people last time to read the indictment. My My guess is, and we'll wait and listen to Jack Smith here momentarily, that he will try to make that case again, to read through it for yourself, uh, that he and the team have presented what they've called a speaking indictment to explain in very clear detail, in 45 pages here, why they've moved ahead with uh, what many legal observers uh, believe is a far more serious criminal indictment than even the classified documents case. This case involves uh, a presidential election, Uh, alleged attempts to obstruct the federal government and proceedings of a presidential election, uh, confirming them, and and, and as Dan Abrams pointed out, that catch-all the right to vote. uh, Getting in the way of an American citizen's right to vote is one of the four counts here, basically, from uh, Jack Smith. And one thing I want to make sure that we point out to folks at home watching this, it's not just Jack Smith versus Donald J. Trump here. These are grand juries that have looked at the evidence and said there is enough here.
9: Right. I mean, look people often say that a grand jury is a, a very low standard that's true but it is still a grand jury of citizens who have decided that there is enough evidence on each of the specific charges to move forward uh, with a trial ultimately of course it'll be a, a regular jury that determines the guilt or innocence in a case like this but they have used this grand jury both to subpoena witnesses right when you get a grand jury you get the power to subpoena people can't just say I'm, I'm not going to show up, as might be the case in, in another venue. When it comes to a criminal case in a grand jury, and you get subpoenaed, you got to show up. So they've had the opportunity to gather a little bit more evidence in connection with this than maybe even the January Sixth Commission. Which we should point out, the January Sixth Committee wanted additional charges that Jack Smith and it says the special counsel did not pursue. Uh, for example, an insurrection uh, charge. That's not here. That would have been the most serious charge imaginable, and the special counsel decided not to
6: pursue that as a charge in the criminal case. It's very interesting because the special counsel, Jack Smith, does bring up January 6th, the day itself, the attack. I want to bring back in Aaron Katrowski to the conversation because, Aaron, you you laser it in, in the indictment where they talk about the violence of that day.
4: With more rugged capability, you can take on any road, even the ones that aren't roads. Kiev Movement
0: that Inspires.
6: The violence of that day.
10: In fact, the, the special counsel's indictment says that former President Trump exploited the violence and the chaos at the US Capitol on January 6th. And, and the indictment begins this section talking about his speech at the Ellipse before all that chaos broke out, quoting him directly, David, uh, where he says, we fight. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And it goes on to to list the the, the former president's actions th- that day, as people were breaking through barriers that were cordoning off the Capitol grounds, advancing on the building, violently attacking law enforcement officers, and and, and taking aim. The indictment does, David, at, at the former president's uh, d- decision not to to try and stop it. And in this particular section. Former President Trump joins more than a 1,000 other defendants who have been directly charged for various crimes because of their role on January 6th in breaking into the Capitol, in ransacking the building, in attacking some of the police officers. And and for a long time there were questions about the, the person who may have fomented all of this. Was he ever going to be charged? And now Special Counsel Jack Smith in this indictment has provided an answer even though a specific insurrection charge is not there.
6: Fascinating. Uh, Aaron Katursky with us. Uh, The references to what played out on January 6th, although the actual charge of uh, inciting an insurrection is not part of this count. This is something that the January 6th committee heard an awful lot uh, from them about the potential to charge on that. Jack Smith deciding uh, not to, though obviously as part of this indictment against the president goes into what played out on January 6th. A big question going into today involving this federal criminal indictment. This is something that the former president uh, had suggested was coming and soon himself after that target letter several days back. Uh, Jack Smith and his team, characteristically very quiet in recent days, though now we have the indictment. And a question about this impending indictment would be whether or not they would directly connect the former president to any of this scheme involving fake electors, to put fake electors in place from key battleground states around the country and send them to Washington instead to try to overturn the election to to keep the White House uh, for Donald Trump. And John Carl, you have found part of the indictment where they connected to Donald Trump. Directly to Trump. And
7: the reason why this is really important here, uh, Smith outlines that, you know, every state sent certified electors to Congress to be counted. They organized this scheme to send alternative electors that claimed Trump had won in these states. And and, and Smith points out this was to create a controversy at the certification proceeding January 6th and position the vice president presiding as the president of the Senate over that proceeding to supplant legitimate electors with the defendants, fake electors, and to certify an election the opposite way. So what this says is that uh, this scheme began uh, by one of the co-defendants who contacted the chief of staff, that would be Mark Meadows. And Mark Meadows said, "Okay, we'll get on this. And then Trump heard about it, was very interested in this, and convened a call uh, between Donald Trump and the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel. Uh, And and what it says is the defendant and co-conspirator called the chairwoman, Republican National Committee, to ensure the plan was in motion. During the call, uh, the co-conspirator told the chairwoman that it was important that the RNC Helped the defendant's campaign gather these fake electors in the targeted states, and falsely represented to her that the electors' votes would only be used in litigation. So they kind of fooled the the, the chairwoman of, of, of the uh, of the RNC as to why they wanted to do it. But Trump is on this call, and and and, and directly involved in pursuing this scheme.
6: And again, that's significant because there were a lot of questions about whether or not Donald Trump would be directly linked to any part of this strategy.
7: We've seen the fake certificates. We knew uh, that some members of his legal team were involved in gathering those names, but we hadn't seen Donald Trump directly tied to this. And this puts him right at the heart of it.
6: Again, we're about five to six minutes away from hearing from Jack Smith, the special counsel in this case. I want to bring back in Pierre Thomas.
5: David, I'm struck by how the special counsel is directly Making the claim that Donald Trump was a criminal president, quote, he widely disseminated false claims of election fraud for months, despite the fact that he knew, in many cases, and had been informed directly that they were not true. One of the cases that they use is particularly, uh, I think, uh, specific and, and and jarring. It said that President Trump asserted, in the state of Pennsylvania, that there had been more than two hundred two hundred and five thousand more votes in that state. The state attorney general told the president that that was not true. And he kept putting forth that lie. So they're making the case that time and time again, the people in a position to know that these claims were untrue were telling the president, no, your information is wrong. And I have from additional sources, people were telling him at every turn, you're wrong, Mr. President. The information you're getting is wrong. And Jack Smith is making the case over and over again. The president knew he was wrong and kept putting forth the lie. What Jack Smith is saying is, is the
6: sowing chaos, confusion that, that led to the events that we witnessed here as a country.
5: And, and David, he's proven to be one of the more aggressive prosecutors I've seen in more than 20 years of covering the Justice Department. This notion of taking on a former president and basically, basically coming to the conclusion that he was acting criminally and now making that case before a grand jury, and now he's going to make the case to the American public. I think you'll hear the words, something to the effect that no one's above the law and that this had to be pursued.
6: Important to remember that Jack Smith also tried war crimes at The Hague not long ago.
5: Exactly. Um, Again, he'll have to prove it in court. We don't know if he'll get any kind of conviction in these cases, but clearly he's a person unconcerned about the politics, unconcerned about the outside noise. He's going after the more precisely my point of bringing that up no nonsense uh, prosecutor in this case one other interesting point about
6: a possible defense here right
9: is that unlike in the documents case where it's a pretty straightforward case right either he knew he had these documents and he was obstructing the investigation or he wasn't this there could be a more complex defense meaning i expect that he in if this case goes to trial would say something to the effect of i was relying on advice and counsel I was getting from other people. Yes, it's true. Someone said to me that it didn't happen. Someone else said they didn't believe it. But you know what? There were still other people who told me it was true. And when I heard it was true, I said, I gotta do something about this. I'm gonna go forward and try and fix this. That's the sort of defense you could get here. He puts it on the lawyers, says on the legal side, they told me that this was a completely legitimate way to move forward, some of the co-conspirators, by the way. And then on the factual side, saying, I had people
6: telling me that there were problems in each of these states, even though others were saying it's not true. And how would he defend uh, the allegation he's on the phone with the head of the RNC saying we should move forward this fake elector scheme? Right. In his view, it's alternate electors. Right.
9: In his view, it's not fake electors. The alternate electors. Look. And by the way, in some of the states... They didn't go as far as in others. In some of the states, they actually had language in their documents that said in the event that there is a dispute um, when the electors are being certified, then we are the alternate electors. That's not really as big a legal problem as saying we are the electors. We are the legitimate electors. Those are the ones that are the bigger problem than saying in the event that there's
6: a dispute. We would be the ones, and that's a critical difference. And how significant is at this point that they have connected, Jack Smith has connected Donald Trump to Ronald McDaniel on one of these phone calls directly? Critical.
9: I mean, and and actually, the the very beginning of the paragraph that Jonathan read, as the defendant's attempts to obstruct the electoral vote through deceit of state officials met with repeated failure, beginning in early December 2020, he and co-conspirators developed a new plan to marshal individuals who would serve as the defendant's electors. He and others, right? So he's part of the plan here. And that's the critical point. That's why Jonathan is right, that the thing I was looking for was, how are they going to specifically link Donald Trump? And the call with the RNC, the specific calls that he's making, some of which we knew about, uh, to state officials,
7: those become critical pieces of stuff.
9: And he's Danny constantly
7: Brimson. being asked, he's asking to be updated on the progress yes, of yes. the plan of getting these fake electors uh, together. And at one point they're asking a a campaign official to put out a statement about it and the campaign official is saying oh you know how am i going to do this this is illegal electors so clearly people on his team knew that this was not only not true but illegal
6: you're looking at live pictures right now we're expecting to hear in washington from the special counsel uh, jack smith again it was just about a half an hour ago that we learned of now a second federal criminal indictment this one Uh, with four counts naming only the former president, Donald J. Trump, in this indictment. Though, conspirators, uh, there are references to several co-conspirators. The only person named, though, in the charges, the actual uh, counts in this uh, federal indictment, the former president himself. It's 45 pages long. Again, it's what we call a speaking indictment, purposefully written in terms that the American people, that voters across this country can read it and understand the actions uh, being taken by Jack Smith uh, and his team. We're expecting to hear from Jack Smith. We've been told about six o'clock Eastern time. We'll keep an eye on that camera. In the meantime, as we await Jack Smith, we have learned at this hour when we expect to see the former president, Donald Trump, first answer uh, these criminal charges, I want to bring in Catherine Falders for that. A-, a time and place on Thursday has now been set, Catherine.
4: Yeah, we know that special counsel Jack Smith has asked the former president to appear right here at this courthouse Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern for an initial appearance to be arraigned on these new charges, these four counts that you mentioned. Now, this is federal court. There are no cameras allowed in court. It's quite possible that he could remain completely out of view when he comes here. But again... We're told Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern the former president won't be here. He's likely to be accompanied by two of his lawyers, those same lawyers who met with special counsel Jack Smith uh, last week to make the case that he shouldn't be indicted. Todd Blanch and John Loro, who is said to be leading the legal efforts on January 6th. So Thursday, 4 p.m., the former president is expected to be right here in this courthouse.
6: Catherine Falders, with our team here with us today. Catherine, our thanks to you. Again, we're keeping our eyes trained on this room. The moment Jack Smith comes before the microphone there, we'll let you hear what he has to say about this uh, federal criminal indictment. Again, uh, much more serious, the most serious uh, federal criminal indictment ever faced uh, by a former American president uh, in this country. Again, four counts uh, that include obstructing official proceedings, to trying to overturn the 2020 election, a deprivation of rights, voting rights across this country, that every uh, vote uh, be counted uh, and valued in so many words. We're going to bring in uh, John Santucci, who has covered Donald Trump uh, for years. And and John, along the way, what has Donald Trump's defense been to this notion that he
8: knew that he had lost the election? Well, David, I can tell you from speaking to people that have been around the former president over just the last couple weeks and after news of that target letter, Trump was telling people, I never thought I lost the election. I never believed that. And, and some people, David, in conversations with the former president, I'm told face-to-face, actually pushed back on him and said, well, so you were told this in real time. You were told that this wasn't true. And the former president maintaining, well, I never believed that. I always believed that I had won. And, David, the biggest reaction I have to tell you I'm getting in real time from people reading this indictment along with us right now, uh, is uh, one person wrote very strikingly, David, I wish he listened to the good people. Wish he listened to the guardrails that were around him at the White House. And another person writing, uh, if he listened to the actual lawyers, and as John Carl pointed out, it's those unindicted co-conspirators, several of them which are attorneys, that were giving Trump this advice about fake electors. And as we've reported here on ABC, much of the time at the end of the Trump administration, those tense meetings that were playing out in the Oval Office, the screening matches that often occurred between people that were White House employees, many of whom were attorneys, trying to shoot down these other attorneys that were coming in and around Donald Trump, pitching him on this idea of fake electors. Fast forward now, David, to where we are, Trump listening to those people, engaging in those conversations clearly has gotten him yet into another indictment. David. But uh, John, thank you. Is that a defense, though, Dan, that uh,
6: I never thought I lost, and so what if I listen to the bad actors? If you go off of John Santucci's words, th- th- there are many who were very close to the president saying now, I wish he had listened to the good ones. Right. Can he come out and say, well, I listened to the wrong ones?
9: Yeah. I mean, it
6: can come out. It,
9: it may not be a winning defense. Um, but I think it's if, if this actually becomes a legal defense as opposed to a political one, um, that is exactly the sort of defense that he would he would wage. He would say that I had lawyers telling me that we could challenge on January sixth. I had people in these various states who were eyewitnesses who'd seen things happen, etc. The problem for him, I think, will be on some of the statistics that he was providing. Right? Where was he coming up with the numbers? For example, of you know two hundred and five thousand uh, or whatever. Uh, you have know, X number of dead people voted. Now, my guess is he'll be able to link it back to somebody, right? I, I, I presume he didn't just pick numbers out of thin air, that somebody said to him, well, we think that there could be an argument of up to X thousand numbers of, of uh, dead people who voted, et cetera. Um, it's a defense. It may not be a, a winning one because of the number of people
6: who are telling him it's not true. And isn't there an expectation where you're the president yeah. of the United yeah. States yeah. to have yeah. access yeah. to the... Right. Okay, or we'll in, okay, uh, and, uh, we should we're, kill um, Peter Thomas's in. microphone, please, guys. I can hear him getting ready for world news uh, while we're on the air during this special